Welcome to Asia Rising, a podcast of Latrobe Asia, where we discuss the news, views, and general happenings of Asian states and societies. I'm your host, Matt Smith, and Australia's Turnbull government has released a new defence white paper. As well as 5,000 troops and increased spending, there's affirmation of the purchase of 12 new submarines. There have been previous indications that these would come from Japan, but much has changed in both domestic and international politics in this time. Here to explain why we aren't all living in a red and blue submarine is Nick Bisley, Executive Director of La Trobe Asia. Welcome, Nick. Hi, Matt. Nick, why are we now uncertain as to where our submarines could come from? If we wind the clock back, 2009 was the first time the government has said we're going to come out and say we're going to have a new submarines. We're going to have a dozen of them. Is that, was... is that three or four prime ministers ago? Uh, I think it's five. Wow. Okay. If, we, <laughs> if you can keep count. Yeah, Captain Ride 1.0. So first iteration of his prime ministership, white paper released and says, it's a big, bad, dangerous world out there. The Chinese are on the march and we need more kit that can go further and punch harder than we have in the past. And then within months of issuing this thing, said, oh, there's not much money for it. And and it all sort of fell away. Gillard government produced the white paper in 2013 saying, yes, we need subs. But the world's not quite so dangerous as it was, oh, and there's no way in hell we'll have money for them. Then they were voted out. Mm. Abbott came in, made very clear from pretty much day one that spending is going to go back up for defence. Lines that were used actually in the, in the election, although it didn't get a lot of press because it's not the sort of thing that does, but was you know, Labor always cuts defence and, and the coalition can be trusted to keep the nation safe by spending more on defence. The underlying argument that we needed a dozen new submarines and needed to be able to go a long way, a lot further than the current crop of submarines would go, and made very little secret of the fact that he basically saw Japan as the place where we would be going to buy them. And indeed, I'd heard around the traps that the decision was essentially made and that there was going to be an announcement in March of 2015. The problem was in February of 2015, the Liberal Party room said, Mr. Abbott, we're not so sure about your prime ministership. So this was the first leadership spill. And as part of his effort to shore up support in the party room, because he had these South Australians wavering because the current, the Collins-class submarines are made by the Australian Submarine Corporation, which is based in South Australia, saying, look, if you don't make some commitment that I can take to my electorate, I'm not going to vote for you. Mm, mm. Um, they then introduced this rather nebulous thing called the competitive evaluation process. And if you go online, you can see some fairly excruciating footage of then Defence Minister Kevin Andrews trying to explain what it was because he clearly didn't know what it was and they hadn't worked out what it was. But essentially, they kind of said, we're going to have a sort of tendering process. They didn't quite want to say it's an open tender, submarines being what they are. It's not like tendering out for a fleet of trucks. But it meant that the door was open. It meant that Australia could potentially it meant that make Astra- these... Australian Submarine Corporation's in the game then. Mm. The previous Defence Minister, uh, David Johnson, was sort of famous for saying, I wouldn't trust them to build a canoe, let alone a, a submarine, <laughs> which did not endear him well to the corporation. But it meant also that the Japanese now had some competition and the European manufacturers, Swedish, German and Spanish manufacturers, could all of a sudden be part of the, the process. So... Mm. The defence white paper's just landed on the desk with a thud and it says, guess what? We're going to spend lots of money on defence. We're going to buy 12 new subs. We'll make a decision this year and uh, that's it. Mm, mm. So July, the decision is due. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a d- defence procurement decision of multiple billions of dollars. They don't take things like deadlines particularly seriously, but I'd be pretty surprised if we didn't have a decision by the end of the year. Yeah, yeah. So if, if cost wasn't a factor in this because... 
clearly the price of the submarine is going to be up to it. But what political factors could weigh in on us getting submarines from who? So Okay, so there's a few different things that will play in the minds of making the decision. Firstly is the operational requirements. What do you want it to do? Mm. How far does it go? How big is it? How much kit can it carry in terms of missiles and listening surveillance stuff? And can the people who are making their bids, can they deliver on what they want? What economic benefits, quote-unquote, do you want it to produce? I.e., where is it going to be made? Do you want to just buy something off the shelf that's made abroad? Mm. Do you want the whole thing made here? Do you want some combination? And then there's the what political benefits costs do you get from acquiring subs from one country or the other? Now, of course, this is where we've seen a lot of the debate in Australia turn, where Japan is seen as politically a lot more, depending on your point of view, contentious slash good compared with, say, the Germans or the Spanish or the Swedish. So it becomes a bit of a balancing project at this point. Yep. So it might be politically dicey to get it from Japan, but if you want to go the stereotypical route, but it's probably a lot of truth in that, good technology. Yeah, and also there's an operational argument they make, which is to say the submarine that they currently build, the Australian version would be a slightly larger version than that, but they can say, look, this thing's essentially what you're buying I and mean, you know we make it. Whereas the European ones, they're going to have to seriously adjust them. The French one, for example, is going to be a retooled nuclear-powered sub, and that's a pretty serious re-engineering. This German one's very small. It needs to be made much bigger. So they say, operationally, this is the closest to what you want. And, of course, the, the politics of it, again, depending on your point of view, is one pro-China argument that people put forward is this is going to irritate the Chinese no end. This is going to inflame relations with China. It's going to tie ourselves into a relationship with Japan, which is going to sort of bind our hands in terms of how we relate to China, Japan, and the US over the next 20 or 30 years. Mm. And then the converse argument that the Europeans make is to say, it's a cash sale. All you're doing is buying a sub and we'll service it and do that sort of stuff, but there's no expectations of or buying into a sort of bigger geopolitical argument. It's just a submarine. It's just a commodity at that point. It's it's like buying a Volkswagen. Mm. You you buy one or you're buying a lot of them, but, but that's it. The balancing act the government has to make is between that operational, economic, and political calculus and up until the competitive evaluation process, that just wasn't, mm. you know, it was just we're going to buy these Japanese ones. Well, two questions come to mind here is, one, is a closer relationship with Japan such a bad thing that buying these submarines from them would deliver? Two, would it actually deliver a closer relationship? And I guess, uh, actually, three, is China even concerned or bothered where we get our submarines from? Yeah, I think the last one's probably the easiest to answer because the Chinese foreign minister said last week to the Australian Foreign Minister, we don't care where you buy your submarines from because mm. you're buying 12 of them. And that doesn't matter for us, you know, from a Chinese point of view. They're have so we, have, big. Have we shown you our shiny missiles? Yeah, have we shown, <laughs> have we shown you our 1.7 million person People's Liberation Army? You know, yeah. this is, we tend to be a little narcissistic and forget that objectively a dozen submarines, best case scenario, you, you're going to be able to have two-thirds of them out that see at once, best case. More likely you'll have one-third in, one-third resting, one-third being serviced. So you'll have four of them out at sea at any one time. That's not changing anyone's strategic balance. The Chinese objectively don't care about where we buy the subs. What the Chinese don't like, and this is the more important point, is the development of a close strategic relationship with the Japan, which is becoming a more significant military player in the region. That's something that makes China uneasy. And not so much because of us and what we do in and of itself, but because we are seen as an enabler of a country with which China is uneasy 
and I think probably rightly China sees as one of the principal challenges to China's long-term strategic ambition. So that you know, China's on the rise militarily, economically. If its ambitions can be realized, it's going to come at the cost of US influence. The US doesn't want to have its influence in Asia reduced and sees, again, I think probably rightly, makes the judgment that there's probably only one way in which China, China's influence can be curtailed, and that is if Japan, the world's third largest economy, can behave like France or Britain. Mm. You know, that's to say, be an independent military power that's got a pretty serious geostrategic footprint and that is an ally of the United States. And guess what? Australia's sitting down here at the bottom half of the, the hemisphere going, that's what we'd like too, because we know that the kind of world we want in which the US dominates East Asia can only be sustained by having a strong Japan. Yeah. And so we've been developing this close relationship and where I think critics of the Japan option probably get it wrong is to say buying the subs will create a close relationship. I don't actually think that's the case. I think we've already created a close relationship with Japan from which is going to follow the purchase of the submarines. Another thing that the uh, Defence White Paper kind of cited out is that we're going to have an increased regional engagement, whatever that consists of, whether we're going to send our new shiny submarines into the South China Seas just to do a bit of a patrol. How do you think this is going to weigh into it? There's a few things. The government is trying, I think, and has been doing for a little while, trying to have its cake and eat it. That's to say we're, we're developing, and we've been doing it for nearly 10 years, a, a very close relationship with the Japan that is becoming more confident and more outwardly focused and being able to constitutionally do more in the region. Meanwhile, we're trying to say, oh, so let's, let's have good relations with everyone, and that's a challenge, and, and, and it's difficult to do to say we will maintain a high-quality relationship with not just Japan but also South Korea and China, and the ASEAN, the Southeast Asian countries, mm. and the United States, and India. That's that's difficult for a country of our size, but possible and manageable. There's this huge range of multilateral meetings and forums, APEC, the East Asia Summit, where they all come together and generally talk, not, not a great deal else, um, but can help provide the sense of, of a broad-based regional engagement that can try to offset some of the destabilizing Factors that might come from saying, you know, we're, we're hitching our wagon militarily to the Japanese and the Americans. The government rightly is going to try to do that. The problem is that's a, I think that's a short-term management of some decision-making that can potentially lead us overlooking, forgetting that there are these bigger consequences at some point in the future, particularly if there's tension between Japan and, and China, and particularly if that tension becomes very, very hot, mm. most obviously in the islands in the East China Sea, which the two countries both claim then the kind of we've been making nice with you and talking at, at, at talk fests and buying you've been buying a lot of our iron ore and we're buying a lot of your consumer durables, that's not going to count for a great deal. And yeah, so I think yeah. there's a sort of sense of a diplomatic dance that we're going through. Yeah, whereas um, China is Australia's biggest trade partner, I think for China, Australia is about ninth, maybe. Or worse, no, further down. Further, further down, down, really? I think we're about tenth or thirteenth or something. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, no, it's it's a very asymmetric relationship, as, as most countries are. The only one that's got anything vaguely like a symmetrical relationship is the US and China, only because China is so damn big. Mm. I think my last count is 129 countries in the world for whom China is their number one trading partner and so heavily tilted in China's favor just because of its its size and scale. Yeah. You know, I think in the past there's, there's tended to be a view that you had this scare story that we, we depend so much on China's economy for our well-being. We can't say anything that'll annoy them and we've got to tiptoe carefully around this big, you know, scary dragon. 
in the past, that's actually been pretty simplistic because in many respects, China buys stuff from us because they have to. They don't buy from us because they like us any or, or dislike us. It's got nothing to do with it. It's a commercial proposition. They need the things that we sell, principally iron ore. Two-thirds of what we sell to China is iron ore. They need it to build cities, to build bridges, to build roads, to build houses and all that sort of thing. If they don't want to buy our iron ore, they're going to buy it from someone else and it's either more expensive or poorer quality. So the extent to use economic leverage over us has not actually in the past been that strong. Where we're headed, though, is a more complex relationship and particularly one where there's investment. And that's when, once you have multiple forms of economic engagement, the ability to exert leverage goes up, your mutual dependence increases. Because I think at the moment we have an, an important trading relationship. It's dependent in one sense. There's a lot of revenue going back and forth, but it's pretty one-dimensional. It's when you get those multiple dimensions that things start to become rather more complex. There is a way in which China could exert economic influence over Australia at no real cost to itself, and that's in students. So the third or fourth, depending on exactly how you count it, export that Australia sells to China is education. Mm. It's about the same dollar value as coal. And if China said to all of those outgoing students, whether they're high school students, vocational students, university students, if they said to them, can't go to Australia, it's a dangerous place. It's very dangerous. You're going to have to go somewhere else. Then they would all stop coming. And universities, where you and I work, and many other institutions in Australia would find life very, very difficult. But it's really the only area at the moment where I think that vulnerability exists. Come six months' time, assuming that there isn't a another delay or postponement or another prime minister, where do you think we'll be getting our shiny submarines from? Do you believe it's a it's a lock for Japan? Yeah, I think it is. I mean, yeah. I, I think it's a lock because of the sort of mix of factors outlined above. I mean, the first and foremost is that we've made this big strategic commitment to Japan based on this big view about where the region's heading. And it's bipartisan, it's support. The coalition's more vocal about it, but both sides really think this is a good idea. It's certainly very deeply entrenched in the bureaucracy. And that, plus the operational side of things, that the Japanese subs the most similar to ours, will tilt the balance very heavily in their favour. And the Japanese are also saying, well, that they're now open to doing some part of the construction process in Australia so that the government will be able to present a package that says we've got jobs, we've yep. got something we want, and we've got this friend in Japan. And and together, I think, in my view, makes that overwhelmingly going to be the, the choice that's made. So if you want to put money down on the Japanese, the J option, um, you heard it here first. That's it today for the Asia Rising podcast. It's goodbye from Nick Bisley, Executive Director of La Trobe Asia. Goodbye. It's goodbye from myself, Matt Smith. Goodbye. You've been listening to Asia Rising. If you like this podcast, you can subscribe on iTunes or SoundCloud. Please leave us a review there. We love reviews. Follow Nick Bisley on Twitter. He's at Nick Bisley. You can follow myself on Twitter. I'm at Nightlight Guy. Thanks for listening. <laughs>